outside corner, strike one. Hobbs didn't like the call. Well, welcome to the majors, Mr. Hobbs. McBride gave him a good, strong fastball in the inside Welcome back to Real Voices of the Game Productions. I'm Dave D'Agostino, and I'm joined by my Hall of Fame co-host, Kevin Kernan, America's most beloved sports writer. This is Coach and Kernan, episode 250 on our network. You heard a little bit of the music, a little precursor to our guest today. That was from The Natural, the uh, knock the cover off at Hobbs scene right there. We're first at bat in the big leagues for Roy Hobbs. Uh, but we'll get to our guest in a second. Uh, another Hall of Famer, actually. Uh, but Kevin, welcome back to your show here, star of the show. Uh, had some great articles again with Ball Nine. Uh, we love our brothers over there at Ball Nine and appreciate the work you do, as all of baseball does. You're the only guy telling the truth right now out there. So what's been on your mind? What did you see this week? And kind of share with our audience some of the, the, the good, the bad, and the ugly you saw out there. Yeah, I'm getting more response to my columns than ever by baseball people because they've had enough. And uh, two columns this week. One was on the Padres and the clown show that is A.J. Preller and how the, the owner says A.J. is excellence, and we see where the Padres are standing. They can't even win, get into the diluted playoffs, much like the Yankees. But uh, the second column really uh, hit home for a lot of people. It's It was entitled, uh, What Are They Thinking? at Ball9.com. And it's kind of like um, uh, nothing makes sense anymore. And, and I went a deep dive talking to people from baseball, what's wrong. Cause I just got tired of seeing so many, the same mistakes every, every, almost every night guys running from second to third getting thrown out. Um, you know, pop flies dropping. There was a pop fly drop yesterday with the bases loaded after the infield fly rule was called. I don't know if the second baseman from the, uh, the second baseman was trying to be smart from the Rockies and, and trying to get a double play, but or lost it in the sun. They they don't even they don't even use their glove anymore to block the sun. They don't turn. There are no basics in baseball because everything is metrics and measurements, and there's no practicing of baseball. As crazy as that sounds, but you know what? A lot of a lot of crazy stuff is going on in the world, and baseball mirrors that. I want to read one quote from the column. Uh, this is from a talent evaluator. The script of the game used to be written by how you played the game. So when you ran your team out of an inning, you came off the field. The base running coach came over to you and talked to you. You don't see that anymore. You don't you don't see that anywhere. You screw up cutoffs and relays. Nobody talks to you. Nobody talks to the player. There's no coaching moments being taken. Everybody is sitting on their iPads. Nobody is paying attention to playing the game the right way. That's why we watch poorly played games night in and night out. So that's the essence of that column. I, I would advise everybody to go read it and enjoy it because there's a lot of teaching moments in the column. Yeah, no, I think uh, our audience of 40,000 plus agree. And, and, and of course, you've got the year of the baseball world, both here and in your writing and over you know decades of relationships and insight. Um, so keep keep pushing. People are listening. Keep banging the drum. It's, it's you're the only guy doing it. So you got to keep doing it. With our, with our guest today now, uh, introduced uh, to, to me by America's Most Beloved Sports Writer, of course. He had a storied career at St. Bonaventures as a, as a catcher, scouted for the Pirates, also scouted for the Royals, bullpen coach for the Buffalo Bison, uh, where, where he caught some bullpens down there as well. Actually caught in an uh, old-timers Hall of Fame game, caught Whitey Ford and Don Larson. 
And as he describes it, he never played a game in the majors, but he's had a major league baseball sports career and a wonderful gentleman to talk to on the phone. Uh, I wish I could have recorded those conversations as well, but we'll get the the bulk of it here today. But want to welcome Kevin Lester. Kevin, welcome to the show. And a technical advisor, the biggest thing, (laughs) the natural. Um, So, Kevin, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me, Dave. And uh, I'd also like to say hi to Kevin, who I do read Ball 9, and it's outstanding. And he does... uh, Speak uh, old school baseball, and I love that. Yeah, you're you're not alone. You're not alone. We got uh, coast to coast and global um, now. Seventy three countries here on this show that are big uh, big fans of of Kevin Kernan. So and rightfully so. But uh, the last thing I threw in there, the technical advisor of the Natural. Um, you and I share a, a common friend, Tony Ferrara, who was the third base oh, coach yeah. in that movie. Sure. Served, served a little bit, uh, not in quite the capacity that you did, but. Um, how does that happen? Well, first of all, at the time, uh, I was scouting for the Pittsburgh Pirates, and uh, my friend Duke McGuire, who was assistant general manager of the Buffalo Bisons, called me and he said, hey, they might be doing a movie here in Buffalo, and uh, I need I need some help. They want me to try to find some ball players." So I met with a gentleman by the name of Bob, Col- Bob Colesbury, who was the assistant producer, and uh, he says, uh, we know what we want as far as the look, but we need someone to judge some of the ability and talent of these players. So we'd like to hire you to, uh, you know, bring a bunch of ball players in and, and you know, we'd like to choose them for the movie. And I said, okay. So I called Pittsburgh and told them, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not taking a leave of absence, but there's going to be several days. I'm going to be working with this, this film crew trying to recruit ball players. And, uh, so we did that. They hired me to find the talent, and um, when we when we found as many ball players as we they thought they needed, uh, I they gave me my check and I said thank you. And they said we'll see you next week. And I said for what? And they said well we want you to be one of the New York Knights. And I'm thinking, okay, uh, that'll work. And uh, so at that point, uh, a week later, I put a New York Knights uniform on and ended up. Uh, being with them, but it wasn't just as a player. I ended up, uh, you know, being involved in baseball as I am. I uh, One of the first things, that the old catcher's glove they gave me uh, didn't have any laces in it at the in the web. So I went home and I always repaired my own gloves. So I put some laces in it. And uh, the next day, you know, Phil Mankowski, former third baseman with the Mets and the Tigers, uh, he says, Kevin, where, you know, how'd you fix that glove? And I told him, he says, can you fix mine? So I took his glove home, put laces in it uh, at the webbing. And the next day, uh, he's using it. And Barry Bettig, one of the uh, prop masters, who was just a great man, he said to Phil Mankowski, he says, where, where'd you get your glove like that? And he says, well, Kevin Lester made it for me, you know, or, repair, or you know, enhanced it. So Barry came to me and he says, did you uh, put the laces in Phil Mankowski's glove? And I said, I did. At that point, I thought I was going to get fired. But he, I said, uh, he says, well, Robert Redford wants his glove fixed like that, too. So I'm thinking, okay. So I took five, Redford had five, Redford had five, Redford had five gloves. I took them home, put the laces in them. All of a sudden, I'm doing them for the whole team. And the, the uh, prop, prop master put me on a retainer. To fix equipment, gloves, and and then the big thing came <clears throat> later in the in the show. Um, actually, they actually had me throwing balls into the stands too. There was a there was a time when uh, 
Caleb Deschanel, the cinema photographer, he was looking in the camera and I says, Caleb, what are you doing? And he says, well, I'm trying to figure out how we're going to get the ball to land in the, into the frame of the, uh, the camera. And I says, well, I can throw. And he says, what are you talking about? He says, I can, I can throw that to where, where you want it. He says, if you can do that, I'll give you 20 bucks. And let me just step back for a second. Previous to that, we they developed an air cannon made with a canister, like a gas gas grill canister, and it was, they pumped air in it, and they had a valve, and they shot the ball, and it didn't work because it was knuckled, and it didn't know where he didn't know where it was going. So Caleb says to me, "I'll give you twenty bucks if you can get it within the frame of the throw." And while he's talking, uh, Mark Johnson, the producer, Barry Levinson come over, come over, and a couple other camera people. Bob Colesbury and I go, what are, you, what are we waiting for? And, and Caleb said, well, Kevin says we can get the ball, you know, right in the frame where, where, we, where we're filming. So now instead of having 20 bucks, I got about 180 bucks riding on this throw. So I make the throw, it lands right where they wanted. And from then on, they, you know, part of the retainer, I would throw the ball. So it, uh, it worked well. But the big, the biggest thing is late in the, in the movie, when we're doing uh, Redford had to do hitting scenes. He, um, the prop master came to me and he says, where do you get your bats made? And I said, I, I get them. I order them from Louisville slugger. And he said, well, we need to get a dozen of yours uh, overnight and we need them without any writing and, you know, any labels on them or anything. We need them plain. And I says, well, first of all, that's not going to happen. And I said, why do you need him? He said, well, Redford wants to use your bat. And I says, well, we're not going to be able to get them from Louisville. I says, but let me see what I can do. So that night I went home and I hand, hand for all night long, I hand sanded and used a little wood chisel to take my name and the label off and sand it down. The next morning I brought it in and they put Wonder Boy on it. And uh, that's the bat he, he, he used when he was doing all the hitting. And the prime minister said, we need more than one because if we break it, we're in trouble. And I said, well, I got about three or four more home at home. So I went home and I actually went to the high school where I was an athletic director and uh, I put them on a lathe and just all day long sanded three or four bats down, took them in, they labeled them. And, and so the Wonder Boy bats became uh, the ones I made. He, he ended up using. So that's so, how I kind of got so involved in the movie. Wow. So you, you actually made the Wonder Boys. That, that's, I did. Did well, you get to I, I said that I'm, yes, I, you know, I did. Uh, the prop master gave me actually three of them, one for each one of my sons. Uh, when I say, cause they, they had a dozen made for Redford that they were all the same. He didn't like, and, uh, the ones that I gave them, that's what he, he used when he, when he did bat. So at the end of the movie, the prop master did give me, did give me three of them to replace the ones that I, I donated. And uh, I keep them locked up, and they're for my sons. I have three sons, and someday they'll do something with them. That's phenomenal. Well, let me interject here, Dave, real quick, only because yeah. uh, I, I happened to be watch uh, Turner Classic Movies the other night, and they, you know, they have deals with, um, you know, they sell props from movies. Uh, they auction them off at, at great numbers, and I noticed a Wonder Boy bat is going to be auctioned off in early September, and they're promoting it, so. Uh, you may have something there more, more, uh, more uh, kind of priceless uh, <laughs> than, than than you think. So imagine that here we are forty years later, and they're walking yeah. off the bats, and you probably had something to do with them. Well, uh, just on a side note, when I was uh, the nineteen sixty 
61 World Series, Cincinnati and New York. My father's cousin was a guy named Buddy Hassett who used to play first base for the uh, the Yankees. And every when I was a kid, we'd go there and we'd go to the clubhouse. I'd meet Mickey Mantle. He'd give me a, a broken bat and I'd go home and I'd you know put screws in it, tape it, use it. He'd sign some balls for me. I'd go home and play with them. You know, you didn't. We didn't collect memorabilia when we were kids like that back in the fifties. So after the '61 World Series, my father goes down in a clubhouse after the game with uh, Buddy, and uh, they looking for Mantle to try to get the ball or something. And they see Roger Maris, and uh, Buddy says, "Hey, where's the Mick?" And Maris said he's gone. And he says, oh, "I was looking for something to give to my my, my cousin's kid, Robert." Roger Maris flipped him his batting helmet from 1961. The year he had 61 home runs. Wow. So I get the helmet the next couple of years. I'm using it, playing ball. If I strike out, I throw it down, you know. And, and then in 1993, I, there's a guy named Rosen who was a collector for the Yankees. And he, I'm reading the sporting news, and he's got an article about how he wants Yankee memorabilia. So I called him, and I said, uh, so the lady answers the phone and she says, what do you have? And I says, well, I got Roger Maris's batting helmet. And I hear some guy in the background. She says, this guy's got Maris's helmet from 61. This Rosen guy says, uh, you know, where do you get it? Buddy has it. He grabs the phone. He says, where'd you get this? And I told him all about it. And he so I'll give you $4,000 for it. And I says, man, I'm not interested. He says, well, get yourself a, a, a letter from Buddy Hassett explaining it, which I did. And then 1997, there was a guy from Leland's. I was listening, and he was coming to Buffalo, and he was looking for memorabilia. So I took the helmet over there, and he said, don't even take it out of the bag. He says, let me let me de- uh, describe it. And he says, it's uh, Maris. He says, Maris, number nine, ABC, size seven and a half. I said, that's it. Offered me 10 grand for it. Wasn't interested. A few years later, a guy from American Memorabilia, I was at Mickey Mantle's restaurant in New York, and my wife went over and told him, yeah, this guy's got Maris's helmet, you know, and he says, well, can you come to Boston in two weeks? And I, eh, maybe not. So eventually I saw an, an ad in the sporting news that some guy was, they were going to sell, uh, Sotheby's was going to sell, uh, uh, oh, oh, whose uniform was it? Oh, Joe, Joe DiMaggio's. So I, I texted them. And, and I told them I had the helmet and they called me and I, I went to Sotheby's and we ended up, we ended up, uh, Sotheby's auctioned off the helmet. That was pretty good. Paid for some of my kids' college. <laughs> Sorry Great to get cool. off the natural, but that's another story of mine. I got a bunch of them. It's all baseball. We, um, what, what's some, so when I, when I got to visit Tony Ferraro, who was, I mentioned was the third base coach in the yeah. movie, he had a nice picture of him and Robert Redford and on the picture, it said, uh, Tony, thanks for teaching me a little bit about baseball. And on Tony's side, he said, Robert, thanks for teaching me about girls. So yeah. Robert <laughs> obviously gave him some advice on on women. But what are yeah. some what's some advice that you gave, let's say, Robert Redford hitting or some of the other ball player actors in the movie that, that well, served as what, a technical advisor? As I mentioned, I was an athletic director at uh, Williamsville South High School outside of Buffalo. So they asked me, you know, we had some, Buffalo doesn't always have the best weather. We had some raining days and that, and we're kind of hanging around. And, and I, I recommended to, uh, again, Mark Johnson and Barry Levinson, I became pretty close with. They were pretty mad because we couldn't, you know, Redford couldn't take batting practice. I said, well, I, I could take them to the gym at Williamsville. 
to high school and we can uh, I can pitch to him in the batting cage. So we ended up going to the high school and uh, I worked with him on hitting. Now, Tony Ferrara also was involved in this. So Tony spent time with him on hitting and and uh, I basically did the pitching. And I will tell you this, Redford was a pretty good athlete. He swung the bat pretty well. When we did have batting practices at the stadium, he did hit a home run in right field in the old Rockpile War Memorial Stadium. But basically, I uh, and then we had the New York Knights practice at the high school too. But a lot of uh, some of the players, the players from New York, and the actors from New York, those are the ones we had to spend time with working on, uh, you know, showing catching and. You know what a what a player what a catcher does uh, after a pitch is thrown or a ball is hit. Um, infielders, uh, Phil Mankowski, I know, worked with some of the infielders, but a lot of the guys did know about the game. And we had Joe Charbonneau with us, you know, and uh, so I was more along of of a, a support. Um, anybody needed anything? The fact that I was a local guy, I had contacts. I could uh, make things happen, uh, get things that, you know, especially with the prop master. But as far as, uh, you know, I used to have to, they used to put me in front of the uh, camera. There was a $250,000 film camera. And I would put a catcher's glove on my right hand and I would put another glove on my left and I would kind of circle my body and circle my body around the lens because there were some close-ups of guys hitting. They didn't want that camera broke. I actually put a mask on and two gloves and I'd, I'd stick myself right in front of the lens. And I, there were probably at least three times I had to deflect the ball from hitting that camera. You served more, more roles in technical advisor. You, you, you took the, the role of that. What was that? The air compressor ball machine. You're, yeah. of <laughs> reviews, you're throwing BP. It, uh, it yeah. sounds a lot like your baseball life. You, you figure out roles to play and you, you, yeah. You yeah. Yeah, it was. This, I was. I'm kind of the guy that gets involved. I don't just sit back and and watch. And uh, I think uh, Bob Colesbury, the assistant director, picked up on that right away. And he had me doing everything. Matter of fact, when they came to town, they needed some people to. They had to figure out their camera angles and everything. So they, we went to all War Memorial Stadium, and uh, it was actually myself, Duke McGuire, and Joe Charbonneau. And uh, they needed guys to hit, to run, and slide. And uh, I wasn't very fast, and I wasn't a very good hitter, so I had to slide a lot. So I got got a lot of strawberries uh, during the, the practice filming. But, well, there, uh, sorry, go there, on. There must have been some interesting stories on set with you know people obviously don't have intimate knowledge of Robert Redford or Robert Duvall. Share some, share some. Well, Robert Redford was is such a professional. I mean, that guy, he he knew he know obviously he knows how to act, but if he didn't like it, he'd redo it. And he, he was so he was so professional, so so easy to work with. Robert Duvall was outstanding, just a fun guy. Um, did a lot of things with him. You know, uh, once I got involved. They had me there every day, even if it wasn't a baseball scene, if it was a different, another kind of scene. They would say, I was always there. And I got to know uh, Robert Duvall very well. Wilford Brimley was outstanding. Richard Fonsworth, a coach, who was Coach Red. Uh, Glenn Close, outstanding lady. Uh, Barbara Hershey. These were people I got to know well because every weekend the production company would have a 
of a party at, and it would either be at a, the hotel uh we would you know dance and music and food or we would uh go on a boat called the miss buffalo and travel on the niagara river but um i will tell you a story about the uh the the uh carnival scene which was filmed in south Dayton, new york where uh roy Hobbs strikes out the whammer um when we were there, uh, it was only me and one other guy, Steve Pagliacic, were the only two other ball players that went. And when we were there, um, there, there was a scene where the ball, the strike three, hits the glove, and the ball has to be right in the glove. So Bob Colesbury tells me, and he put the catching gear on. I was catching when Redford was throwing, but when when, I, when we had to throw the ball into, into the film, into the, into the lens, Colesbury had the glove and held it, and I had to throw the ball. And I was probably only about 10 feet away from him. But I had to throw it so it hit right in the glove. And you, you'll see that in the film. And it's little things like that. I did, I did more of, instead of uh, telling people how to do things, I did more of the technical parts of throwing hitting, catching, and, and stuff like that. So that was more of my role. No, very, very important role with that. I've got one more question. I'm going to pass it on to AMBS. With sure. um, Actually, kind of, what I got one and a half. When you put the laces in, the gloves, did that throw off the, I guess, the era that the game was supposed to be played <laughs> in? It, it, it probably did, but I, I used the exact same leather that was in the glove, so you couldn't tell. Yeah, because back in 30, 1939, and I didn't realize that they, those gloves didn't, I guess, didn't have the laces in them. You know, they, right. the, upper part, the upper part of the, uh, the webbing where you catch the ball did not have the laces, and I, I, that's where I ran the leather through. And uh, it, 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 it was very hard to catch the ball for guys who have been playing, you know, recently, I should say, back in the 80s, recently. Um, it, it made it much easier to catch the ball and yeah. they all wanted it. And uh, so I was, they, they asked me to do it and I did it and yeah. it all worked. And those older gloves, you more or less stopped the ball rather than catch it, probably putting the laces and helped guys catch it a little bit more and made it uh, better baseball. And um, you know, we, and it, I'll move this on to, to AMBS right now, but we talk a lot about modern day baseball and you were a catcher. I noticed in the film, you didn't catch on one knee. You didn't have any, you had no wristbands on looking at what was going to be the next play. And you certainly probably didn't have catch com in your helmet. So how, how on earth did you survive? Well, you know, it's interesting. I'll, I'll give you a quick story. I am also the official scorer for the Buffalo Bisons. And about three years ago, we've kind of been taken over by Major League Baseball. Major League Baseball has taken over everything. In the past, I used to deal with a gentleman by the name of Randy uh, Mobley, who was just an outstanding, he was president of the International League, Randy Mobley. So if there was a, a, a situation or a, if a, a play, if a manager wasn't, you know, was a, didn't like a call, you know, most calls are 50-50, a lot of them are 50-50, and you make some managers happy or some hitters happy or not. So there was a situation where I gave a um, pass ball to a catcher, and I got a call from a guy who's out of the major league office, and he had said that the manager – it called. I think it was. I think it was manager from uh, uh, Syracuse because there was a, a, a. They had a pretty good pr- prospect catcher, and I gave him a pass ball, and the the guy in the 
major league guy asked me, why didn't you pass ball? And I says, well, I'll tell you the truth. That pitch couldn't have been more than six, six inches off the plate. And I said, I can't see giving a pitcher a wild pitch and a run scoring in a, you know, in a earned run for that because the catcher, well, I said the pitch was six inches off the plate. It was a right-handed batter. The catcher was leaning on one knee. And I says, and he, he didn't shift his body. He just reached his arm and his, and his, his, his glove did not even reach six inches off the plate. And I said, I just can't see giving a catcher or a pitcher, a, uh, a wild pitch for that and an earned run. And all the guy said to me, he says, that's a very interesting concept. So when I see catchers on one knee, they can't shift their body left and right, as we were all taught. And so to me, I hate the one knee thing. I just don't like it. And, you know, then I started thinking, well, will the a a b ABS, the automatic ball strike thing, change that where they don't have to frame it anymore? But, uh, and the reason they they're on the one knee is to, you know, keep it low. They all, everybody wants that low strike. Well, if you, they go to the automatic ball strike, I'm hoping they get off one knee and get back on two knees again so they can block balls in the dirt. Yeah. Uh, we, I think we all agree here. And yeah. I posted something on Facebook yesterday where my, one of my other concerns with that is injuries. These guys are exposing that one thigh with no protection on it when they're exactly. one knee yeah. and the Yankee catcher got clubbed right in the thigh yesterday with it. Yeah. Myself and Blackjack McDowell going back and forth on the uh, the issues that Major League Baseball has with it. So, but with that, I mean, we we went all over natural one knee catching. I'm gonna pass it on to AMBS here to to pick you up. Great, yeah, it's great, great stuff. And um, you know, we're, we're talking to Kevin Lester, a uh, you know basically behind the scenes star of uh, the natural, and we're coming up on the 40th anniversary of the film. And it was actually filmed in, in 83, right? Uh, it filmed in 83. It's, it opened up in the spring of 84. Yeah. So, so you, uh, and you got a championship ring out of this, right? Yeah. That's a, another little interesting story. Um, towards the end of the filming in Buffalo, I was uh, sitting with, uh, uh, with uh, Mark, Mark, uh, uh, Let's see, Barry Levinson and Mark Johnson. And they said at the end of the movie, we usually give a gift uh, to the, uh, you know, the people who are, in the, who are in the movie. And he said, we're, he says, what do you think the guys would like? Because I became the spokesman for them. And, and he says, uh, do you guys want a, a, you know, a jersey? Do you want a, what would you like? And I said, eh, guys probably got their, hung into their jerseys anyways. And I said, I said, Mark, this is baseball. And if you win a championship, championship teams get rings. And they just thought that was the greatest idea. So I contacted, uh, uh, again, with the high school, you know, we get high school rings and we use Justin, it's a ring company. So I contacted a lady who we dealt with named Willie Dando. And I told her what we would like to do. And she brought all kinds of uh, samples of rings. And uh, me and another guy, uh, uh, Steve Pagliacic, who was in the movie with us, we uh, spent time with her and we designed... Uh, a ring, and um, and it hurt my feeling. It hurt hurt me because it was the sample of the Pittsburgh Pirates 1960 championship ring. As I mentioned before, I'm a Yankee fan, you know. And uh, so the the ring it, it's outstanding. Uh, we chose what how we wanted it, but there was a gentleman from Johnston's who did the real design to it, and uh, every New York Knight player got a championship ring, and. Uh, one thing I do want to say, uh, when 
after you, you know, we had to sign a, a SAG contract not to, not to join SAG. So we just got basic money. And, uh, but Barry Levinson said to me, you know, after a couple of weeks, he says, you know, Kevin, he says, look, he says, I know, I know I can't pay you the top money, but, uh, I'm going to take care of you at the end of the movie. And I didn't think much of it. He says, I'm going to give you an important part of the movie. Well, the important part was when, um, when, uh, Glenn Close wanted to let, uh, Roy Hobbs know that he had a son. He wrote, he wrote, she wrote a note letting him know that that boy was her, was his son. And so my job was to get the note from, actually from the, the police officer handed it to me and I was handing it to Roy Hobbs. And according to Barry Levinson, it was the turning point of the movie because up at that time, up until that time, Roy Hobbs was thinking of throwing the game. Cause if you've read the book, the book's a little dark, the natural, and he does throw the game, but in the movie, the, the reason he did not throw the game was because he, uh, he realized he had a son and I was the guy that handed that note. And, and, you know, and Barry Levinson took me out to California for six weeks, too, which was amazing. Yeah. That, that, so it was, well, you gave them so much. I mean, the, the movie wouldn't yeah, have been natural without. Yeah. Well, I don't. Thanks for saying that. I, I mean, I know I did. I got involved. I, I, I was involved in a lot of uh, t- technical, important parts, uh, suggestions to. And Barry Levinson uh, was a great director. I mean, he, he loved the movie Diner, if you haven't watched it watch it but um he you know he loved baseball and he would ask me things and i says well what i started doing then i started researching things and looking at old movies and seeing and and old videos you know you could at that time you could you could find things i watched old ball players i i researched this thing myself also and i saw the way catchers acted i saw the way pitchers threw i saw the way guys batted you know, and I and I would make suggestions to you know guys on the team. This is you know this is the way they did it back in 1939. And uh, yeah, I don't you know, know if... and it, it it's paid off. I mean, it, it's it's very realistic. Uh, you know, yeah. it's one of the baseball movies. And again, I think uh, uh, the gentleman you mentioned earlier, he became the producer of The Wire, right? Or didn't he do The Wire? That would be Bob Colesbury. Robert yeah. Colesbury. Yeah. Talented yeah. people, talented people. And uh, I, and I you, want to throw a couple numbers at you and, and let, sure. let our listeners know what this means. Because um, I still, I'm, you know, I'm still fascinated by Wonder Boy, but um, <laughs> K- K-55 and MC-44. Go ahead. That was my model bed. K-55 was a, man, uh, a Mickey Mantle handle. Okay. And uh, MC-44 was uh, the, the bat that uh, Willie McCovey used. It, and it was a... A wider uh, barrel, and uh, in my in my thinking, the wider the barrel, the better chance of barreling up and hitting the ball. Right. You know, in the K fifty five handle, because a Nellie Fox handle was much too thick, and an LK line handle was much too thin. But a Mickey Mantle handle K fifty five that felt good to me. Kevin, I studied baseball bats like you wouldn't believe when I was a kid. I would go to sporting goods stores and I would try every bat they had. And I would figure out which model I wanted. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I've been to the Louisville Slugger Museum too, and that's an amazing place. If you get yeah. in the back, they let me go in the back room to see all the original uh, yeah. designs and, and, and the mantle. I, you know, I, I saw the mantle bats, and, uh, you know, that handle was uh, what made that handle good for you? 
it would it felt good in my hands. It, 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 my hands are are not real big, so I didn't want the Nelly Fox handle, which was real thick. I used a Nelly Fox years and years ago. That, that's a thick. That's a beast. Yeah. That's a telephone pole. Yeah, and uh, the, then there, uh, Johnny Bench used an R forty three, which was kind of thin, and also um, as I mentioned, Neil Kaline. I think he had an R forty three too. They were thin, and I didn't like the thin handle. You know, I, the K55 felt good in my hands. And as I said, the bigger barrel, I thought had a better opportunity to at least get a piece of the ball. But I, you know, it's when I, I, I think the reason I was put in the New York State Baseball Hall of Fame is because I live the game and I love it. Right. And when right. St. Bonaventure nominated me, I, I think they realize that. And what I try to tell kids who aren't going to be professional baseball players who love baseball, every aspect of it, try to get involved in it, study it, read about it. And it's a great sport. It's something you can, the rest of your life, you, you can, you can follow. When I, my senior year, I had to write a dissertation for a, a, when, I, when I was a senior at St. Bonaventure. And I wrote about how baseball is for everybody. You don't have to be, you know, six foot nine for basketball. You don't have to be, you know, weigh five, 400, 300 and something pounds for football. You baseball, and I use this Freddie Pytek as, Pytek as an example. You know, you can, you can be five foot five. You can be, you know, you don't have, it's not a size issue. It's, it's, it's how you, you, you throw, run, field the, the tools. It's how you practice it. You know, if you're five foot five, you're never going to play in the NBA, but you could play in, but you could play in the major league baseball. And yeah, that's a great point. And, yeah. and that, and that's what makes it great. And, uh, and I think in, in some ways that's what's being lost today. It's, it's becoming too much about numbers and not about the heart and soul of the game. I want to, yeah. I want to throw a line from the movie at you and um, tell us about this scene. Losing is a disease. <laughs> it goes for the, that goes for the uh, 20, 23 Mets too, by the way. Losing yeah. is disease. Yeah, what, that... What does that line mean to you? <clears throat> I'm sorry, say that again? What does that line yeah. mean to you? Because you were in that scene. Well, yeah, it, what it means to me is that it, it's a disease. If if you're losing, it becomes becomes automatic unless you change that. And we were... That, that gentleman, his name was Peter Poth, the whole idea there was hypnotizing us into not being losers, to hypnotize us to become a winner. And that man was outstanding. And, and during that scene, now, the one that made the cut, Redford just walks away, and I, you see me sitting there. Yeah. But origi originally, one of the things, he bumps into me, and I give him a dirty look and almost push him away. But the one that made the cut was, uh, I'm sitting there, you know, we're supposed to sit there and act bored. And... Uh, yeah, it was, it's a good scene. That, that guy was perfect for the part. Yeah, it was you know, great an scene. interest, an interesting yeah. thing I didn't mention. His son also. I they hired part of the they hired me was to find the Bat Boy, uh, not the Bat Boy, the uh, young young uh, Roy Hobbs. Oh, okay. Young Paul Sullivan, young man named Paul Sullivan, did it, and they had me. They sent me three left-handed blonde kids, and I had to work them out to see which one. And I chose Paul Sullivan, and he was outstanding. And uh, just another part of the movie that I, I did get involved in. So but they had I so felt, much faith in you. They allowed you to choose the young Robert Redford. 
Yeah, they did. And they said, we want to know, we want him to be able to pitch, want him to be able to swing a bat, and we want him to look left-handed and, and blonde-haired, you know. But uh, you, you mentioned the Peter Poe thing. Uh, there were some great characters in this movie. But one thing I forgot to mention, and I don't know if it's important or not, but Caleb Deschanel, the cinematographer, who he did the great stuff and or, uh, you know, he did he did the John Glenn movie, The Right Stuff and everything. Wow. Now his daughter, I guess, Zoe Deschanel is a, a great actress. He, I was a bullpen catcher in 1985 with Buffalo, and I'm in a bullpen. Mike Bellani, our general manager, comes down and he says, hey, some guy named Caleb wants you to call him after the game. I said, okay. So I went in the office. I says, Caleb, what's going on? He says, hey, Kevin, I'm keeping my pro- I'm keeping my promise to you. And I says, what's that? He says, if I ever do another baseball movie, you're the first guy I'm calling. And I said, really? I says, what do you, what do you got? And he says, well, we're going to do the Shoeless Joe Jackson story. We don't have a name yet, but it eventually became Eight Men Out. Eight Men Out. Yep. Yeah. And it, he says it's going to be Indianapolis in Indianapolis for the month of September. And uh, we want I want you to be in it with me, with us. And I said, great. So I talked to my wife. She says, great. I talked to my principal, who I'm the athletic director for. He says, go ahead and do it. Well, Kev, about a week later, I called Caleb and I says, you know what? Fall is the most busiest time of the year for high school athletics. I says, I had my one shot. Thanks for the offer, but I got to I got to take care of the athletic program at Williamsville South. Wow. So you, you, you gave it up for the kids and. Uh, yeah. And... I, yeah. But there were, you know, again, the. I'm trying to think of the, there, there are some other great things in that movie. Uh, well, I wanted to ask you one other thing I yeah, want to ask you sure. about. Uh, and again, we're speaking to Kevin Lester, who uh, basically was, a, a, I, I would call it an advanced technical director for, for The Natural here coming up on the 40th anniversary. And the, um, I guess you scouted out, you talked a little bit about the, uh, the carnival scene, but you also scouted out some, some other, uh, you know, uh, places as well. Like, t- tell us about the candy shop. Well, the candy, uh, the candy shop uh, is called Parkside Candies, and uh, it's it's right from the '30s, probably even earlier. And if you look at the uh, in the movie, you'll see that it's an old thing. And and they were looking for, they were always looking for things in Buffalo. And again, I told you I, I hung with hung with Barbara Colesbury and those guys. They said, "Where, where can we find a, a place, a malt shop? Are there any old malt shops here?" And I said, "Yeah, you got one right down the street from us, from where we're filming, Parkside Candies. They love that. We had the we had for the for the train scene the uh, central terminal. Um, again, now there were guys, there were scouts who came around and found those things." But they, they asked me about them. Would that be a place we could go? You know, and I said, yeah. But, yeah, the the the, the old parts of Buffalo worked well for that movie. And uh, the Ellicott Square building, um, which was used where, you know, you see Redford in the elevator and, and uh, Kim Basinger in the elevator and everything, that was, that was owned, that building is owned by a, a, a former uh, college classmate of mine. Oh wow! I contacted him, and uh, I said, you know, I said they're going to uh, use your building. He says, yeah, they've already contacted me. And I says, well, I want you to let you know, Carl, these are great people. I says, let's you know put on a good show for them. Oh, that's nice, and, isn't it? Yeah, and everything fit perfectly. And going back to the candy shop, 
you know, obviously Redford and Glenn Close uh, speak yeah. there. One of the things that struck me about the movie too was in all her, most of her scenes, you know, she's wearing white, she's this and that. She, oh, yeah. They make her very angelic. Um, is is that something you you notice at the time of the filming? You know, the way her well, character you, you was portrayed. Yeah, even even to take that a step further. Um, Barry Levinson wanted this movie to be like Greek mythology. He, you know, the terms in the movie, Homer. Um, you know, the reason the reason the um, uh, Arbor Hershey was killing the great athletes. And this question I get because uh, there's teachers from around uh, the United States that call who show this movie in their in their movie class and. One of the teachers I worked with gave him my email. And one of the biggest questions I get from teachers around the country is, why did she kill the great athletes? And if you listen to the, uh, when, when Roy, when uh, Whammer uh, is reading on the train, you know, this Olympian was, the, the Olympic athlete was killed. This so-and-so was killed. And then she was on the train to kill the Whammer. But when Roy Hobbs struck out the whammer, her eyes went to Roy Hobbs. And the whole idea there, according to Barry Levinson, was that Greek uh, heroes, they were always heroes. They died young. They never got old and, for, for, you know, and uh, couldn't walk. And they were always, they were, they were always heroes. So they, they died heroes. And that's what her, her whole concept and was that she wanted these people to never get old. And there were a lot of, uh, Barry Levinson, when I talked to him about it, he wanted it to be a little bit of Greek mythology, you know, the historic home run, uh, you know, breaking the lights and everything. It, it was, um, he wanted that, he wanted that to be part of the, part of the movie. And that, that's one thing a lot of people don't understand or don't get. And uh, for some reason, maybe it should have been explained more, but they, you know, that movie is very long. They cut a lot out. And I will tell you this, Joe Don Baker, when we were, they asked me to work with him on hitting. Great man, Joe Don Baker. I'm telling you, Kevin and Dave, he could not hit to save his life. <laughs> so I got him. Now we were in a bat, we were in a batting cage at the carnival scene down in South Dayton, New York. And and, and uh, Bob Colesbury says, Kevin, could you go work with with Joe Don Baker? He, he he's not hitting the ball. I go, what are you talking about? That guy, I saw that old movie, Walking Tall. He swung that bat pretty good. So I go to think, I introduce myself to him and we're talking. So I'm pitching to him and, and I got to tell him how to hold it, you know, how to, you know, dip it off your shoulder a little bit and just swing it straight. Well, if you look at the movie, you can see he wasn't, he wasn't yeah. hitting it very well, but uh, he was such a great guy. You know, so that's it. I forgot to mention that I did work with him on hitting, and I, and I don't think I did a very good job. Well, he's he have his... to strike out there, right? Right, Dave? So that was, that yeah, was no, he strikes out, life. yeah. You saved so, his life. He struck out. He didn't get killed. Yeah, that's exactly. Right. That's right. That's right. I just, yeah. I just got a, a couple more, and uh, sure. we'll wrap it up. Uh, you know, this, this is so fascinating, uh, the ins and outs of, uh, you know, of just one of the greatest baseball movies of all time. Was it? Was there other places too? Uh, was there a, a stadium used to mimic yeah. uh, Wrigley Field there, or something? There was a high school stadium called um, All High Stadium at Bennett High School that had uh, a lot of the brick facades around uh -huh. it. So they they were able to convert it to look like Wrigley Stadium, wow. like Wrigley Field. I'm sorry, in Chicago, and the surrounding area. 
there were old buildings and uh, and they actually they actually built the uh, the uh, trap the t train trellis above above the uh, above the uh, what do you call it the ice cream shop but they also made the field look like uh, Wrigley Field so they, they were very creative um, there was some other places we went uh, outside near, near Batavia New York to film the scenes in the fields um, trying to think well there oh there, there was a place called the uh, uh, the uh, uh, an old armory uh, which was about a block from the stadium where they did their uh, their sets their movie sets they built uh, you know uh, Kim or they built uh, the uh, the apartment and they the built a few right. other things right. in there Maston Avenue Armory, that was where they built those. So, um, so basically the whole film was filmed in the area. They didn't really go... Everything didn't... was filmed in, uh, the, within uh, probably a 50-mile radius, which, which uh, matter of fact, at the end of the movie, Mark Johnson said to me, he says, I saved hundreds of thousands of dollars filming right here. But we did, they did take me to California. Uh, we filmed uh, the party scene where Redford gets sick, uh, You'll see me standing at the piano. You'll see me dancing. You, you got to look quick for stuff like that. But um, yeah, and you know, we did uh, scenes on the uh, on the train I'm trying, under under the Santa Monica Pier. Um, those I had nothing to do with. I just kind of hung there and uh, enjoyed myself. But um, yeah, it, it was great. And uh, yeah, I. I it was, it was, and you know what, Kevin and Dave, it doesn't stop. I'm, I get interviews uh, every couple of years. Um, we did a scene uh, after ten years at the at the where I, I was actually batted left-handed and hit the home run and ran the bases. I'm not a left-handed hitter, but um, this movie just keeps going. I get phone calls all the time. It's a classic for sure. Yeah, it is, and and, and I think because the characters are so well. Uh, yeah, I mean, drawn out, but also the guys that you picked were, were good for what they did. And well, actually, I, just, I thought of a few more questions, but like, like Joe Charbonneau at the time, uh, where was his baseball career and why did you pick him? Well, he actually, um, Joe, when Joe got released by Cleveland, he was playing in Buffalo and I was playing on a, 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 a national, well, we wanted a team, an amateur team, a semi pro team, and we picked Joe up. Okay. So I got to know him. And then he, he decided to, after I stopped playing and was scouting, he still played with my old team. So when it came time to pick players, I got a lot of, a lot of the guys that you see in, on the New York Knights are guys that I played with. But I got to give you a quick story about Phil Mankowski. So we're done. Here's what we're doing. We're, we're, uh, I got a bunch of guys there. They're taking batting practice or infield practice. I'm behind home plate behind a batting cage and, and Mark Johnson and Levinson and Colesbury are there and they go, all right, we, we saw enough. Uh, we, we saw enough. And I says, well, I, I says, I got some guys here that are home run hitters. And he says, no, we're going to bring in Ed Cranepool and Ron Svoboda and this guy is some from New York. I said, well, I got these guys here. Let them at least hit. So I put Charbonneau up. He hits one deep center field. I put a guy named Duke McGuire up. He hits one over up on the roof in the right field. And I put another guy I played with, Jim Mary, hits one to the left. And, and, and Mark Johnson said, he just saved me about $100,000. We don't need those other guys. Well, so I felt bad they didn't get it. But the other thing is, 
And I said, you got any other guys coming from New York? He says, well, or any former major league. He says, well, we got a guy who third, played third base for the Mets, but he's hemming and hawing. I'm not sure he wants to do it. And I says, what, what's his name? And he said, Phil Mankowski. And I says, you know what? I'll call him tonight. I'll make sure he's here within the next couple of days. He says, how the hell do you know him? I says, he was my best man when I got married. Wow. That's a, that's some divine intervention right there. Yeah. And, and the, uh, also, you mentioned it before, but um, Redford, and I think your wife, uh, you know, obviously yeah. everybody, the women just, uh, you know, oohed and odd about Robert Redford. What, what about your well, wife's experience with, uh, with, with Robert? Well, I will tell you this. We were, we were treated like kings. We had red carpets walking into the stadium. We had our own trailers. And my wife was, you know, the wife was able to come and she'd sit, you know, around while we're filming and everything. And, and, uh, so every woman loved Redford, right? So he's sitting with her. So they're sitting at my, I introduced him and, you know, she, he was, she was very talkative with him and he was great with her and they were sitting in the dugout having a glass of wine one night after, after we're done shooting and, uh, they're sitting there talking and a photographer takes a picture of it. And Mother's Day, 1984, uh, on the second page of the Buffalo News, the second uh, section, the city and city and region, there's a full picture of my wife sitting with Robert Redford. And her girlfriends called her and said, we hate you. <laughs> so, I mean, it's just a classic picture, which I, my, my wife, unfortunately, passed away 13 years ago, but that right. picture, yeah. it's just, it's, it's a great, it's a great to remember. She it was a good part of the movie for her. You know, yeah. and I got to tell you, part, part of the carnival scene, my kids were out there and I, they were young at the time. I think one of my sons was just three years old and another was uh, five. And, and uh, when Redford's telling uh, the, the Wham or uh, Max Mercy, who was outstanding, Robert Duvall, he was, yeah, he was, making comments to, to Roy Hobbs as he's pitching and Redford saying, Hey, mister, watch your mouth. Yelling at him. Hey, mister, watch your mouth. Yeah. Right? I remember that scene. So, yeah. Yeah. So the kid, my kids, my wife said my two sons were crying because I was actually catching Redford at the time and he's yelling it to me. So my kids said they, they hated Robert Redford because he was yelling at their father. <laughs> well, yeah. The memories and uh, you know, you're telling these stories uh, just to, and this is what makes our show special. Um, it's different than anything else that's on on podcasting out there in well, the podcast well, world. I, I love talking about it. And I appreciate it. And some guy, you might want to. I've had some very interesting situations as an official scorer too. That might be another podcast some well, other time. Well, like Dave always says, you know, we always uh, we're good to our guests and uh, we bring them back because uh, and, and you you know this what's going on with official scoring now in the major leagues is very questionable. Oh. But yeah. we always end with, uh, at least I, you know, Dave always wants me to end with this. Uh, and and it's, a, it's a good question about can the I, game. Can I get one more in before you get to that, Kevin? I got sure, it. Dave, go ahead. Yeah, I, want, I want yours to end it. Yours is the, it's the cap off here. You, um, I, lo- I love the story you told uh, AMBS regarding the note, handing the note to refer. I didn't know that part of the movie, that that's what turned him from that. Throwing yeah. Yeah. Yep, yeah. that was a key part. Yep. Beautiful, beautiful scene. I love that scene. It's uh, it makes me get chills when I when I watch it. 
when he reads the note. But the one of my favorite scenes is I, I've got a my my dad passed a close relationship with my dad. He was my coach all the way through, and um, when Wilfred Brimley's in the mirror in the locker room and he says, "You know, my dad wanted me, me to be a farmer," and yeah. Robert Redford comes in and says, "My dad wanted me to be a ball player," and he says, "You know, well, you're the best damn ball player I've ever seen." What, what what did your dad want you to be? If you, were, dad, if you were in that scene with when you replaced Robert Redford, what would have been your answer? Uh, same thing, Bedford, uh, baseball player. And my memory is my father is just always uh, playing catch with him, and uh, it brought so that movie with with Redford catching playing catch with his son uh, brought back so many memories. I mean, my father uh, loved the fact that I, I I was in that movie. And he, he just, you know, but I mean, I would go to ball games with him. We would go to New York and see the Yankees all the time. And, and as I said, I used to get mad a little bat ball and I wish I would have kept those things. Cause you know, but you know, my father would, my father loved the fact that I, I was, a, I was a baseball player. Yeah. And that kind of leads into Kevin's last question here. I was hoping you didn't go too far and you kind of let it right up to the point, but Kevin, I'll turn it back to you. No, 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 no. Yeah. That's the thing when you when you speak to guests, you get some uh, really interesting stuff, and it makes you think about other questions. and And I I do think um, before I ask my last question that um, you know people consider you know there's a lot of baseball movies consider. Is this your favorite baseball movie? Um, you know what I kind of loved like Bull Durham a lot. Yeah, that's well, that was realistic. You know, that was realistic. Kind of lived it as a bullpen catcher, you know, minor leagues. Right. Um. And I do, and I, and of course, you got to love the field of dreams, right? You know, but is natural my favorite movie? Yeah, you know what? I have to say yes. Mm. I have to say yes because it's what it does. It it it, it talks about the love of baseball. I mean, so did so did Field of Dreams, right? But Roy Hobbs just loved the game so much that he wanted to come back and play, you know? And, uh, I mean, to me, the, the, the fact that I've been in minor leagues, uh, you know, is it a, not only a fish score, but bullpen catcher and everything, you know, uh, bull Durham is, 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 is pretty cool. But yeah, I uh, think, I think all three of them are just great. Great. Yeah. Players. Yeah. And the, the last question you're kind of getting in there anyway, but, uh, it's a simple question. Take your time and answer it. I think nobody has more uh, expertise on this because, like you say, it's a lifetime of being in baseball in one way or another, including the movies. And and one other final point I want to make, hearing you talk about uh, what these people did and, and the way they uh, treated their people kind of kind of tells you that Hollywood was really good at one point. You know, <laughs> I mean, uh, oh. a lot of things going on now. You wonder what's going, what the hell's going on in the world. But it sounds to me like these were uh, pretty much salt of the earth people. They were great. They were great. I'll tell you, I, and we, about uh, five years ago, uh, Barry Levins came, came to town because Turner Classic Movies did The Natural. And uh, I had about a good 20 minute sit down, private sit down with him. And we, we talked about was how much fun we had doing it. He's in Barry Levinson loved baseball. <clears throat> he was a Baltimore Oriole fan. Yep. And so many times, you know, when you're doing a movie, there is so much downtime. You know, it's hurry up and wait. The conversations I had with Barry Levinson about baseball, and it wasn't just about Major League Baseball. It was about all types of baseball. You know, 
we talked about the Negro Leagues. And, and the reason we talked about that, because when when I was choosing ballplayers, we had, we had some African-Americans come out and try out who were right. good ballplayers. Right, but it was 1939. And, you know, yeah. yeah, and you know what? Uh, they talked to me and said, hey, you know, we can, we'll use them in another part in the movie, but we can't use them as baseball players. And I said, fine. You know, and uh, we talked about the Negro Leagues. We talked about, um, you know, the just the game itself, children, children playing the game. And at that time, and, and at that, that time I was putting together a program for the Buffalo Bisons for youth baseball. And I was doing a lot of research and I was, and I had elementary school kids and I would take about 20 of them and I would do, and I would do uh, uh, pitching, hitting and running. And we did a program called Pitch, Hit and Run, which now Major League Baseball does. I don't know if I was the first one to do it, but I designed three, three skills and, and how to score them. Wow. You could do 300 kids in an afternoon. And, uh, and I put a lot of that together and I was talking to Levinson about that, you know, that my goal was to not only that, to get inner city after we had the conversation about the Negro leagues and the I said, my goal with this program, because it's an inner city program is where is to try to get some, some of these African-American kids who are outstanding athletes and they're only five foot eight or nine that they're not going to play in the NBA, but they got a chance of playing major league baseball. Yeah. And you were going to this guy's program, but MLB yeah. could have hired you and got that I, thing. Right. Yeah. yeah. And then later on, I did run, I did run the, uh, the IBI. We had an RBI program in Buffalo here, but my goal had, and I, after I'm done with an all day session, I look at the kids who are in the program, they run, they throw, they have bat speed. They, they're, they could develop. And I'm talking seven, eight, nine year old kids, right. and and I'm thinking if I took if I had these kids for a couple summers, I could turn them into great high school, possibly college, maybe professional baseball players. But every time we took a break, they went over to the courts and shot baskets, <laughs> and that's great, and that's great. But you know, and and the, you know, the mom would come and pick them up or walk over, and I'd say. You know, your son, or your, and we had, da- we had daughters too, the, you know, the girls were, I'd say your son or daughter, I said, they have tools. Baseball is known as a five-tool sport. Your sons and daughters have these. And if they develop them, they can have a, a, a nice career and either if it's high school, college, or even professional. And it's hard to tell a parent whose kid is f- going to be five foot eight that they're not going to make it in the NBA or even college. Yeah, there's you, know, you don't be want hard. to break that dream. You don't want to break anyone's dream. Yeah. The reality is, they, you know, these kids. There's, I, I, I'm telling you guys right now, there are kids that I spent time with. I know could have played uh, college, college baseball. No, that's a great point. And 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 again, the this gets to the last question finally. But you, it, it was such a great uh, conversation. We we stretched it out a bit, but. To you, Kevin Lester, what does it mean to be a ball player? And again, you don't you can think about this for a second, uh, but uh, you know it's a simple question. What does it mean to be a ball player? And what's your response? Okay, my, to me, to be a ball player, to me, first of all, is to be part of a something positive, part of a team, part of a team where nine guys or even twenty five guys have a goal, and and to, to to develop that goal by practicing. And the goal is to play the game, and it's and it's not. And I've never been a win at all cost guy. To me, if if you play and you participate, and you do the best you can, that's all that you can ask of yourself. 
when, when I've lost and I've lost championships and I've never been disappointed about them as long as I've given my best. And to me, it, it, it you know, you talk about America, it's America's game. You know, it, it, to me, it's always been America's game. I get football and everything changing, but to me, it's little boys and fa- fa- fathers and sons, fathers and daughters, because there's some, you know, I played against the Silver Bullets, Bullets baseball team. Oh, yeah. Phil and Joe Necro, the girls team, they yep. were outstanding. So yep. girls girls can play today, too. And there's girls that are going to play in college or something now. And you, you got some playing minor league ball. So I don't want to leave them out. But to me, it's fathers and sons playing catch. It's a re, it's building. It's a relationship. It's, it's again, doing something positive. And you don't have to, and, and there's all different levels. You don't have to play at a top level. You can play at a very low level and still enjoy it and have fun. And, and my, my lifelong friendships are with guys I play ball with. And when I stopped playing, it wasn't the fact that I wasn't playing anymore. I missed the, my, my friends. And, and that's, you know, that's a great answer. And that's, 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 that's the way it is. And that's, and again, I'm. I don't want to even. You know, I even. I, I dislike even talking about the nerds anymore. But they, they, they don't understand any of that, and and that's why I think it's so important to do what we do here. And I lied. I have one more question. I thought about it as you were talking. Um, sure. Because I'm just curious, and you may not even know the answer to this one, but I was just thinking about it. When Redford hit the lights uh, with the ball, how yeah. was that? How did that scene develop? And was that a ball that was thrown up there, or what, what was? No. It, what, Okay, here's what here's what it was. There were that's my last question. I promise. Okay, there there were a four by eight sheets of plywood that were lifted on a, 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 a lift that lifts uh, things up. Okay. Okay. And what they did, the, they had tuna fish size cans on those four by eight sheets of plywood, and they just ran a, a like a, a little piece of contact over, over some electrical units and that's how the that's how the explosions happened and then we had we had ballots uh banks of lights out there that were, were hit a ball was hit into them and they broke the lights broke and the and the 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 uh canisters of uh polyat polyatrics what'd you call it of fireworks set off yeah, fireworks right right so those were staged and they moved it around the field you know, it wasn't done in one spot. They moved the they moved the unit or the the lift around the field, and they they redid uh, other. They added other uh, four by eight sheets of plywood with the tuna fish size cans of charges. Wow, that's and, interesting. Like I say, a bank of lights, and they no, I did not throw the ball into the bank of lights. But they were, a ball was hit into the bank of lights. Yeah, yeah. Wow, great stuff, Kev. Thanks so much. Yeah, yeah. great great interview. Uh, thanks to both Hall of Famers, uh, our resident Hall of Famer, Kevin Kernan, America's Most Beloved Sports Writer, uh, coaching Kernan, episode 250. Thank you so much for what you bring to the network and our audience of 42,000 plus, 73 countries. Let's keep supporting not just this show, but all our shows, but also uh, Kevin on Ball 9, the only guy telling the truth out there. So let's continue to read and, uh, and get behind his stuff. And then Kevin Lester, thanks so much for a great interview today. We talked on the phone a few times leading up to this, and I could listen to your stories all day long. And I know our audience, very sophisticated audience, they love the game. They ask critical questions. They're going to eat your interview up today. So we appreciate you giving us over an hour today. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. 
Um, Sorry about the technical difficulties. Hey, we all got them, brother. That's part of our show. That's part of the loveliness of our show here. But uh, with that, uh, episode 250, Real Voice of the Game, Coach and Kern in the books. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys.